This is Linux at Work, episode E, for the 4th of April, 2021. Welcome. I'm your host, Ben Vasharan, along with my co-host, Chester. Hi, Chester. Ben, good hearing from you. Uh, we, had, we had a little gap there, but uh, that's all right. We're getting getting back into the groove of things for the uh, podcast audio nerds out there. I got a new recorder. I got my, my H5, my Zoom H5 handy recorder, and... This will be the first podcast recorded with it, so maybe my maybe a little improvement in my audio quality because I can can turn up the gain a little bit. What's happening down under? Not too much. I'm actually excited. I'm using Ubuntu Studio today, which you laughed at me about earlier. But uh, down under is fine. I don't have a new recorder, but uh, things are good. I, I definitely can't complain. Well, uh, this episode we decided to have a conversation about Docker, and I think this is kind of a interesting to me because we mentioned it a couple times in earlier podcasts and that there was a little bit of a jabbing back and forth and that you were quite pro docker and and uh, maybe me a, a little less so but uh i've come around a little bit on it and i kind of have a list of pros and cons and as you and i both work in the security field uh clearly first and foremost to come to mind to me are security benefits and security costs of any given choice that you make and the migration toward things like Docker and Kubernetes and uh, all this different, let's just call it container infrastructure of different kinds and some of it commercial and some of it pseudo commercial and some of it uh, open source, they all have benefits and weaknesses from a security standpoint. But I also host a lot of my own infrastructure at home as we discovered with some of the problems I'm having with my new ISP as we prepared this podcast. And uh, because of that, I also see a lot of the benefits uh, to streamlining things, making them easier, faster, more compatible, all those kinds of things. And so I was hoping maybe through this episode, we, um, we kind of try to cover the, all of the different pros and cons that we kind of see from Docker. And I, I know you have more of a developer background than I do, right? I come from more of a IT and security focused side of things. And I know you're, you're strong in security as well, but uh, you write code and actually publish things and help uh, with integrations and things professionally. So why don't we, maybe we start there, right? Because it really seems to me like Docker initially, at least the concept of it was a very dev centric, move fast and break things, agile kind of concept, right? And how do you, how do you view it as a uh, as someone who's a, an actual software developer on occasion? Yeah, I see it as a consistent and predictable environment that scales. And uh, I think I just used every marketing buzzword that first came to mind. But as you said, I, I've got a bit more of a developer background, um, not by choice 100%, but uh, especially over COVID, I, I've really started to focus heavy on Python development and with that how do you get your code out to the public and if I take my career back let's say 14 15 years when I was you know fresh to the industry I found myself doing a lot of HTML PHP a little bit of JavaScript and back then it was very difficult to to take your code into production and by that I mean, you know, you'd write something, you'd use like a development service like LAMP or XAMP was a, a popular one that I used on Windows. And, it, you know, you'd write some code, you would then move it up to your web server or you'd build a new web server, push it out there and cut your DNS across. And it was very unelegant, I think is the best way to put it. It, it, was, it was terrible. Now we're in, you know, 2021 and... Where I find containerization very useful is, you know, you build your code, you, 
you write your dependencies into a file. You tell the container exactly what you want, you tell the ports that you want exposed, and you can just push that container into production. Uh, and, you know, whether it's AWS or Azure, you know, you can drain your clients from one load balancer and then spit it out and have your clients talking to a, a brand new target, which is your new container. And it's very quick and very efficient to say, well, what worked in this location in dev can just roll straight into production predictably and work. And that's what I really like about it. Yeah, I think that that standardization is an important thing, right? Most developers are not actually IT professionals, right? I, I recall earlier times in my career where I was in product management helping design products and I would explain concepts with this understanding that developers understood the entire network stack and how our switches and routers worked within our infrastructure at our organization. And then was shocked that they actually rely on the internet just being a thing that works the same way as everybody else. Like they don't have that in-depth knowledge necessarily. And as a result, there were always um, big functional changes between going, as you say, from dev to production. They would hack stuff uh, often incredibly insecurely together on their workstation just to get it to work and then hand it off to prod. And of course, the production environment was a carefully managed, change-controlled environment that looked nothing like what they were doing on their workstation. And this does eliminate a lot of that risk, I think. And um, I, I've started using it more and more for my internal services that I uh, operate now for similar but different reasons. I don't know what the developers depending on. And I've had quite a few of my services break recently. You and I a few weeks ago spoke about Home Assistant. And I love my Home Assistant server. And I actually use it every day now. And I'm coming quite reliant on it. However, the problem I had was I kept having breakages based on different Python packages on my Arch Linux install when I ran it natively. And one morning I woke up and went, you know, maybe Ben is right. Like the way I solved this problem is by using a Docker container from the developer because that's how they developed it. That's how they made sure it worked. And they knew that they relied on this particular version of a Python library or this particular revision of this uh, widget or that widget. And by adopting their entire environment to be the exact same thing as theirs and just dropped it on my existing infrastructure, I was somewhat assured that it's probably not going to break, right? Like it'll just continue to run and I can update it. And every time I update it, it's already been tested by that developer and probably hundreds, if not thousands of other people running that exact same container. And it's not going to be broken unless I just happen to be patient zero. Spot on. And that's the thing about consistency is, you know, you can even find a new product and or a new service, a new amazing open source tool in and say, well, how am I going to test it? Do I need to build a new server? Well, no, I don't. I can, if it's got a Docker Compose file, I can literally type Docker Compose up or Docker Compose build then up and it's going to build it and run this microservice on your desktop or on your server, wherever you like. So even from a testing phase, you don't need to commit a lot of resources and time to try something new which is fantastic. I, I don't know about you, but I've found some services before that I really like. Home Assistant's a great example. If you don't containerize that and you need to go through uh, deploying it, creating a systemd uh, control file so it automatically starts, go through some troubleshooting, create a user context for that to run in so it's secure, that can get messy and it's time consuming. If you just want to try something, it's perfect for that. 
Another benefit you sort of hinted at is scalability. And while I'm not entirely sold on the scalability argument, and we should probably do a future podcast about the available choices for making things highly scalable. And again, those pros and cons, just like we're doing with any given thing that we review. And and certainly there's a lot of pros on the uh, in the column for Docker on that standpoint. And that, as you say, you can start uploading these things into Azure or Amazon environments and just spin up as many of them as you need. They're all identical and ready to go, right? You put them behind a load balancer or a, a caching system, depending what kind of a service or a thing you're trying to deploy. But the, the the uniformity of it, and 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 it's sort of a security benefit a little bit. I'm going to talk a bit more about the cons and security at the end. I think we'll cover the pros first. But the one of the great things about a container is that if it were to get compromised, you can literally destroy the container and fire up another one, which of course is just going to get compromised again if it has a vulnerability in it. Don't don't fool yourself into thinking that that's a, a solution to your problem. But on the other hand, they may not have gotten into the host environment and left any sort of, let's call it a persistence mechanism so that you can easily get rid of the malicious thing and bring something up clean again, even if you have to do it over and over again while you're coming up with your strategy to fix whatever way it, that, that's led to it being hacked. But but to some degree, that, that speed with which you can f- bring them up and shut them down and have nothing persistent happening to the initial image itself, the only persistence being sort of this overlay. Uh, for those that haven't used Docker, most of these are deployed as uh, sort of an image that's the running environment for the application itself. And then they have what's like a mounted overlay file that's the the, the part of the file system that can change. So where you might write your logs, where you might write, uh, say, your blog posts, if it's a WordPress instance, all, all the things that are your content are exist in an overlay file or any changes exist in an overlay file. Whereas all of the actual stuff from the developer itself is in an image that's basically read only, right? There's no changes that are ever made to that image. And so if it gets compromised, if you just get rid of the overlay, you're back to the original developer image and it hasn't been altered. Correct. Yeah. There, there is one exception to kind of that rule is a container sh- does share a kernel with the host operating system. So it, we'll, we'll get to that in the cons, though, I think. Ben, okay. there, there's a whole plethora of security concerns around how Docker actually operates at that level. And I was hoping that we would at least start with the uh, tantalizing and rosy prospect of a pretty neat thing <laughs> before we get to some of the negatives that are uh, involved. Yeah, well, you, you've summed it up pretty well, though. Like, from a security standpoint, you, you, you're spot on. If it's compromised, you can burn it and regenerate it pretty quickly. And then it's just like consistency, deployability. It's it's great. Now, one thing I, I will mention is like not every container is pre-built. Like Nextcloud, for example, you can download a pre-built container and not really know the inner workings of it. But much like you can download and you know any operating system, like I, I quite often use a Ubuntu based container uh, that's maintained and patched by canonical and then i build and drop all my dependencies on that so a lot of people see containerization as a black box where they're like well i don't know what's going on in there but it just works but that's actually not the case as well and there's a, a lot of misunderstanding around that so quite often developers will just release their code let you build it and it just uses a vanilla 
image, much like an ISO you'll download, and then injects your developer files that you can look at. It's still plain text. It's still free. It's still open source. But then during that build process, it adds it into the image, and the, the image is actually built locally on your endpoint or server. So it's not all mystery and pre-built containers. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And maybe we can give an example of that. Uh, I see a lot of uh, environments I play with will use a stock MariaDB image, right? It's just a, v a functioning version of MariaDB that's there. And then when you build it, it'll import the schema, create the database, add the tables necessary for that thing to work, right? And so they're not necessarily deploying the the whole uh, they're not giving you their own version of MariaDB with all the stuff pre-configured in it. They're just going. You get this stock MariaDB image, and then they add their secret sauce to it to make it functional for the purpose of the uh, functioning software, right? Yeah, correct. And that's um, where I'll I'll start turning to the cons, uh, which this one wasn't even on my list, but since we're talking about it, I'll start there, which is there are a lot of stock images out there. Um, I forget, what is the name of the Docker repository where you download them, Ben? Docker Hub. Docker Hub, that's right. Uh, Docker Hub. There's tons of things on there, right? And you can search for things like Nextcloud as an example, and you might find several dozen different Nextcloud Docker images that are out there. And that's where, you know, there be dragons. Who knows what is in those containers, right? Like you have to be careful about this. Like I, I chose to deploy my Nextcloud and my Home Assistant in Docker when I built my current server, and I did that because both organizations provide a officially sanctioned image that I trust that they're maintaining in a reasonable manner. But the problem is I'm trusting. I, I, I could audit. It's not a black box. You can get into these containers and see exactly what's in them. You can explore the file system. You can shell into some of them, not all of them, but most of them have a, a will usually have a basic uh, bash shell or a busy box or something in them. But the challenge there is I don't have time to audit all the things and all the practices inside that image. And so I'm putting my my belief and my faith a little bit in the Nextcloud developers and the Home Assistant developers. But somebody also have their own spin of the next cloud deployed differently in that container for scalability reasons, or maybe it automatically uses let's encrypt or whatever, and they'll just deploy it to Docker hub. Now you're relying on random third party person who you don't know, who may never update or may not have followed good practices, uh, may not be queuing. There's just variables all over the place. So I think there's a big difference between developing in it. Like you're talking about as a developer going, this is a great portable way for me to move my app around versus installing software that way, the way we might think about flat packs or the way we might think about deb files. You're correct, yeah. You need to trust and verify the source. And it's it's much the same. Like One of the tools that I use a lot is Docker Compose, which uh, lets you just build containers using a Compose file. And with that, you can say, well, here's my base image. Here's the Git repository I want to pull from and build it all manually. And... Personally, I'm the most comfortable with that, but it's just not practical for a lot of people. Like it, it really starts getting down in the weeds and then you might start questioning whether it is a viable solution or not. But if you can't trust that developer, if they're not verified, and I'll be honest, I don't think Docker Hub actually does a very good job advertising what is sanctioned and non-sanctioned. Um, I don't think Docker Hub does an amazing job in general, which maybe I shouldn't say, but with that, it, it just makes it so hard to trust the source that you're getting it from. 
Yeah, I agree. And so you do need to be careful of that. And uh, like you, I, I don't mind getting in the weeds. I use Docker Compose for pretty much everything I'm doing with it these days. And But uh, it did take a while to get my head around it. And that's another situation we need to be careful of, right? If you don't understand how it works, you probably shouldn't be using it. Because if you really believe it's a black box, then the danger of what you could do wrong or how you might troubleshoot it if it breaks is a big deal. You need to understand it. And it, and it is a... Um, it's not a difficult concept to understand once you start tearing it apart, but you do need to spend a couple of weeks with it to kind of get your head around all the bits and pieces. And I was helping a friend and colleague of ours deploy some Docker containers recently, and he was just learning it. And we were trying to figure out why something wasn't working. And it was somewhat amusing to me because of all the, it, there's, I guess what I would call it is layers of abstraction. I, I've got layers of complexity here in my notes, but it's layers of abstraction and complexity. And, and both of those things are bad things, right? So are mostly bad things, right? Uh, the reason we abstract things is to make them portable. But when you do that, there's another layer of complexity with the networking, right? And a lot of Docker things talk inside their own virtual interfaces and then will then be sort of matted or translated or bridged back to your actual Ethernet adapter or maybe just local host on the hosting system. But just even those complexities of how do I sniff this network? How do I figure out why this thing isn't working? How do I get a shell inside the thing to determine why I'm getting different DNS results than I expect? You know, all this kind of stuff uh, will be quite foreign to an IT person who's normally used to managing proper virtual machines or real computers as opposed to this sort of half-baked container environment where some things are shared with the operating system and some things are unique to the container. Yeah, and that's where the traditional method is. When I say traditional method, you know, spinning up a server, dumping some files on it, publishing it to the internet is far more appealing because you can use your favorite text editor or, you know, you can SCP files off of a host if you're not comfortable working the command line. And you can really look at that application. It's bare metal in a lot of sense, which if you're a traditional system administrator, you're probably much more comfortable with. So it's having this attitude of it's a black box and it's hosted and managed by someone else, it's just not going to work for a lot of people. And that's where, you know, even patching comes into it. And one of the things I hear people say about containerization is, you know, oh, it's because it's managed by someone else, I've pulled it off Docker Hub, it's all patched and updated by other people. But like, I personally want to know what software versions and revisions are running in my network. You know, the last thing you want to do is do a vulnerability scan or hear that a CVE comes out for, you know, Apache web server and you say, well, I might have it, but I might not have it because I don't know what's inside of my container. And that's a terrible situation to be in as well, right? Well, that, that's one of my final notes here. So you kind of cut me off at the past. That's exactly it. I wrote down SBOM, which for people not in security may not mean much, but in the security industry, there's a lot of conversation right now about a software bill of materials. The idea of what are all the software components that make up this given product in, in looking at uh, situations like the SolarWinds hack at the end of 2020 and other major things that we've seen in the past, say Heartbleed, for example, and OpenSSL. You go, well, which products do I own or what, you know, do I have this vulnerable OpenSSL in anything on my network? And once it goes into Docker, it becomes um, a bit opaque for most people to be able to determine or even understand if they have that thing or not. And, and you brought up updating as well. And I mean, updating is another interesting challenge, right? I'm used to, I have a habit of basically on average once a week logging into the five Linux boxes I administer 
and running the equivalent of an app get update or a Pac-Man SY uh, update and updating my system. Now, all of a sudden I have to do that. And then I have to go and remember which Docker containers are running on this system. Do I need to go do a Docker compose down, Docker compose pull, Docker compose up uh, on two of them? And oh, there's that one that's not Docker compose. I need to go do that. You know, it, there's a lot more work involved in doing updates than just telling the software manager on a system, update me. And then the end result of updating, you still don't know if you've got that vulnerable open SSL or you've got uh, you know, that kind of situation because you're reliant on the provider to be responsible to that Apache vuln that you're talking about. Yeah, do remember too though, and this is what a lot of people forget, is containers are supposed to be ephemeral. They're, they're not supposed to be persistent like traditional web services or any service like the so the whole idea behind microservices and containerization is that it's not a big deal to expect that you do an update when you do a docker compose build or you know it depends on what you're hosting with of course um let's just say docker compose here um but in production you got to think if i'm pushing out software updates every time i push out a new update and i can commit a build to master or whatever branch i need to it then automatically triggers a pipeline that builds my containers and everything gets updated to the level that I expect. It's when you start looking at the small business or home uses where you might have a container that never goes down, that then the, the out-of-date concern can really come into play. Because if you've got a container that hasn't been rebuilt in 12 months, well, there could be a lot of security updates and changes that have happened since then. You're just not aware of it because you don't go through that traditional you know, apt update, um, apt upgrade, um, as you mentioned earlier. So do keep that in mind. Is The the idea behind this is very much DevOps and rapid software development of which then your containers are getting updated in real time while things are being built and pushed into production. Yeah, and, and so I guess the takeaway from that then, Ben, is that you need to look at these things differently if you're using them for agile development than you would if you're using them for consistent deployment of applications, right? Because it's not really designed for consistent deployment of applications. That's just been a thing that sprung out of it because it provides that by accident. Is you, know, you mentioned home use or small business, but I mean, I think even in enterprise, we're seeing a lot more use of containers for that very reason. It's like, we know it's going to work and we don't have to worry about the fact that it, support, that it only supports Python 2.7, not Python 3, or like all these minutiae that makes IT hard. And so, especially in Unix and Linux environments, right? I mean, in Windows environment, it's always broken, so you never upgrade the system. But in, in a Linux environment, you know, depending on how progressive your platform is, you, like with Arch, you break a lot of things simply because you're moving fast and breaking things, to use the, the Silicon Valley term that I despise generally. But I do love Arch for being up to date, and i got to decide which, you know, um, uh, how to uh, make those two things compatible. But uh, I guess the last thing to mention on the con side, which you hinted at earlier, is sort of Docker runs as root. And this is another challenge in multi-user environments, right? So you really don't want to use Docker in a multi-user environment. And you do need to consider the host to be as disposable as the guest, if you want to use those terminologies for virtualization. Because one, if you give a user permission to start and stop Docker containers, they're starting and stopping a daemon that runs as root meaning they are root at that point. They can privilege escalate through it very easily. 
And it also means if a attacker compromises that container because the developer of it decided it was okay to be on a seven-year-old version of OpenSSL and it gets popped because you have it facing the internet providing a service, it's not difficult for that attacker to elevate to root privileges on the host, which means the whole thing needs to be thrown out, not just the container at that point. You're not wrong. Um, that comes down to a lot of misconfiguration as well. So uh, a lot of hosts, and I see it all the time, is if it's like, if it's uh, for me, for example, I, there's a lot of command and control frameworks and security that run in Docker, which is great because you can just spin them up. But there's not a lot of effort into securing them. Now, you can, just like on a traditional server, tell or add a user like wwdata um, as a user, which then will run that web service daemon within the container. So at least it's got limited access to the container itself. Um, and you can set permissions inside a container, which does secure it up quite well. Um, but with the shared kernel with the container, kernel-level exploits are still valid. So if someone manages to get root shell inside of a container or a shell inside of a container, and you're running a vulnerable kernel version under the hood, it's still possible to exploit the host um, with kernel-level exploits, which is a huge security concern. So you, you can't be totally hands-off. I would say that patching and maintaining a container-based environment is easier in a lot of ways, but you still can't be complacent. It's not the end of me having to take responsibility of securing hosts. Well, without turning this into a security podcast, uh, I there are some things you can, of course, do to mitigate that risk, uh, especially uh, in, in, the, in the host kernel environment, right? Eliminating dynamic loading of kernel modules, for example, so that you can't trigger some code to get the kernel to load something that's rather old bits of the kernel that may be more vulnerable, which is an attack I saw recently, is a good first step to that. Uh, you know, keeping the, the host system's kernel up to date, of course, but also limiting its ability to load in additional content uh, that you can't imagine ever needing. And I'm trying to remember which um, kernel module it was, but it was something related to iSCSI that recently had a vulnerability a couple weeks ago. And like a way you could exploit it of course, nobody really uses iSCSI anymore, which is one of the reasons the code in the kernel is vulnerable. It probably doesn't have very many eyes on it, but you could trigger it. You could trigger uh, an application to call something that the kernel would dynamically load the iSCSI kernel module. Then you could exploit it. So by getting rid of some of those dynamic processes and stripping kernels down for the hosts, especially if those hosts are primarily only running containers, you can mitigate a lot of the risk of that shared kernel aspect of Docker. Yeah, so patching is key there, right? Like it's just, let's, you, you need to stay on top, exactly what we've been talking about, right? So so in the end, I mean, if we want to, I mean, looking at the scorecard, if you will, uh, I think there's no doubt in my mind that this is an incredibly valuable tool for developers. And it's not a surprise to me why it's so popular and widespread. I think there's very careful considerations for using it in hosting if you're not developing bespoke apps uh, and have a, a large, well-informed community about containers within your organization. And I, I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon. So I think it's worth acquainting yourself with. Do you have anything to add to that? No, I totally agree. And out of curiosity, yeah, I know you've slowly moved your workloads across to containerization. Are you going to keep using containers in your environment? Are you comfortable with it? 
Yeah, for the vast majority of things, uh, I am moving everything into containers. There's a couple of things that I use uh, that the developers do not provide pre-built containers. And so those things I'm still running natively. And I'm trying to decide whether I feel like packaging them up into my own container just so that I have consistency across all the things I'm running in those environments so that they're all containerized and I've got one process for how I do everything. Uh, or whether it's best to run a few things on bare metal. And so at the moment, I actually, uh, in my my hosting environment, I have one host that is my Docker host that all the services that support and work on Docker sit on that host in my DMZ. And then I have a second virtual machine in that DMZ as well that runs bare metal services. So I know when I'm doing updates that this is the one where when I do updates, I update the base operating system and I update all of the containers. And that means I can use a less bleeding edge OS, for example, to host that. Uh, and then things where I'm running bare metal, I often prefer personally to use Arch where I know I'm going to get the latest patch for OpenSSL approximately 45 minutes after it's published um, because the security updates, especially, I consider that important. And I've seen so frequently recently with systems being compromised by only being out of date for a few days. And so I value super up-to-dateness much more than I value stability in those uh, in that particular part of my hosting. So I have a separate machine that I, I run that bleeding edge OS when I'm running things in uh, bare metal. But I'm convinced that this is allowing me uh, to save time and have more consistent, really it's about, it's improving availability at the small cost of security. I believe I'm losing a little tiny bit of security, but it's improving my availability. And to me, that's a fair trade-off. Yeah, makes sense. And I, from my perspective, uh, considering I'm a pseudo Python developer, though I wouldn't put that on my resume just yet, uh, I'm certainly not going anywhere away from uh, containerization. I, I actually couldn't tell you how I would uh, run any workloads that I've developed outside of containerization to be honest it's it's fast it's efficient and works really really well so I'm I'm very comfortable with that tech well uh, I appreciate you joining me uh, for this chat on docker uh, docker containerization and slash security and uh, we should get together sometime in the not too distant future to talk a, a little bit more about scalability because I think Docker can play a role in that, but there are certainly a lot of other options as well, especially if you're in a DevOps Linux environment. And it might be fun to have a, a, a separate podcast on that topic. Yeah, I look forward to it. So with that, this has been Linux at Work, episode E on containerization. To contact us and stay in touch, please visit us at https www.linuxatwork.org. Our podcasts are available there. They're available via RSS. They're on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else fine podcasts are syndicated. We appreciate your feedback and ideas, so please share them with us via email at hosts at linuxatwork.org or on Twitter at linuxatwork and in our subreddit slash r slash linuxatwork. You got everything gonna be everyone gotta be everyone Don't say you got anything gotta be everything gonna be